listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, Paula and I appreciate all of the continued support out there. We have over a million downloads, and we want to keep growing. If you could leave a positive rating on our podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. Also, tell a friend or family member about our show. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to Fairfield Township in Butler County, way down in Ohio's southwest corner. It's just after midnight on a Wednesday, September 8, 1970. Four shots ring out from a wooded area at a rest stop on Ohio 128. Two women fall to the ground. Melvira Vorbroker, 28 years old, will survive and give police a description of their assailant. But her friend won't be as lucky. George Ann Ryder, just 21 years old, will be dead on arrival at Mercy Hospital. 52 years later, her killer's identity is still unknown. Last year, Georgianne's family talked to the Journal News. In this era where technology has given new hope to old cases, they wanted to make sure their loved one wasn't forgotten. Melissa Meister, the daughter of Georgianne's twin sister, said the clock is ticking. The people who may have information are getting old, if they're alive at all. She reached out to the Butler County Sheriff's Office, imploring them to make another push at solving this one. Melissa told Lauren Pack of the Journal News, There has been a lot that has been passed over, and a lot, I think, that has not been looked at. Things have gone by the wayside. It is the 52-year anniversary, and it's time to get as much information as we can at this point. Now, George Ann's twin was Joanne. She's gone. So are their parents. Their father died a year after George Ann's murder, their mother four years after that. The brief time they had left in their lives was filled with agony over losing their daughter and frustration that her killer wasn't being brought to justice. But their brother is still around, and 75-year-old George Ryder joined forces with his niece last year to get people talking about the case again. In the late summer of 1970, George Ann and Melvira both lived in the city of Hamilton. George Ann lived on Biscayne Avenue with her parents. Her twin sister was already married and living in Westchester. Melvira, her friend, lived on Hunt Avenue. The two women played softball together. They went out that night, and about one in the morning, Melvira pulled her red Dodge Charger off the road near the entrance to a small roadside rest area. At the time, Melvira told police they stopped for a drink of water, which might seem odd, but whatever the reason, that's where they were, sitting inside the car, chatting, the radio playing from the dashboard, when a man walked up to the car and knocked on the window. He was holding a rifle. Melvira told police he was dressed in a 
button-up collared shirt with a dressy sports jacket over it. He demanded their car. The two women got out, and the man directed them into the wooded area of the park while commenting in a way that he wasn't alone, suggesting there was an accomplice nearby. The women didn't resist. When he asked for the keys to the car, Melvira tossed them over, but they fell to the ground. That's when he opened fire. He shot each woman twice. He never did take the car. Maybe he couldn't find the keys. Or maybe he wasn't really after the car at all. Melvira would later tell police she didn't see another car in the area and had no idea how he would have left the scene. After being shot, Melvira blacked out for a short time. When she regained consciousness, it took her a moment to realize where she was and remember what happened. Then she heard George Ann moaning. In the distance, she saw a pair of headlights. Melvira was in pain and bleeding, but she got herself to her feet. She found the dropped keys, made it to her car, put the keys in the ignition, and pulled the car into the road to force whoever was coming to stop. The lights belonged to a semi-tractor trailer driven by Norbert Missler, a produce dealer from Hamilton. At first, he yelled at Melvira to move her car. Then he realized something more was happening. Melvira was panicked, maybe incoherent, because at one point, the truck driver slapped her and told her to pull herself together. That's when Melvira was able to communicate that her friend was hurt. Missler shined a light into the woods, and he spotted Georgianne on the ground. Missler loaded Georgianne into Melvira's car, and Melvira drove her to Mercy Hospital while the truck driver followed. It's not clear why the truck driver didn't drive them both himself, but that's what happened. There was no hope for Georgianne, though. She was dead on arrival from a gunshot wound to her back. Melvira was taken into surgery for her own wounds, shots to the back and arm. She spent a few days at the hospital recovering. She told police she didn't know who the man was who knocked on the window, the man who shot them. And she wasn't the only one who saw him. Detectives soon heard from a man who was driving home after his shift at Fernald, a factory in Hamilton who said he saw a man in a dress coat. Butler County Sheriff Detectives Dan Turner and Ed Tanner, who have been working cold cases since 2017, told the news journal last year the man said he saw the car the women had parked, saw its headlights, and saw a guy in a nice jacket pacing around the car. An investigating team drew up a crime scene map and they noted a grassy area at the scene that had been worn down as if someone had been pacing for some time. For five days after the shooting, police and volunteers, on foot and on horseback, searched a five-mile radius of the park looking for a twenty-two caliber weapon. And they found one. A couple of days after the shooting, they picked up a 39-year-old man from Indianapolis. They found his car blocking an intersection a couple of miles from the park, and they spotted a 22 caliber rifle inside. 
They held him while they checked the weapon out. The guy told police he was in town looking for a job, stopped to have a few drinks, maybe a few too many, and had to abandon his car in the intersection because it ran out of gas. The Bureau of Criminal Investigation quickly checked the slug from the man's rifle, but it did not match the one taken from George Ann's body. The man was released. Melvira worked with police to develop a sketch of the man that she had seen that night. She described him as white, middle-aged, about 5'10", with sandy hair. There was no way to know whether he worked alone or whether he really did have an accomplice. Police apparently leaned heavily on Melvira, thinking she might not be telling them everything she knew. After all, why would they stop at 1 a.m. to get a drink of water from a park? She answered their questions each time they came to her throughout the 1970s, then started refusing and obtained legal counsel. She's still alive and living in Florida, or at least was last year. But last year, when Detectives Tanner and Turner went to Florida to try her one more time, they were told she was out of town. Other attempts to reach her went nowhere. Detective Tanner said, I understand she was treated like a suspect for years. We just want a fresh, updated story so we can hear it ourselves. We just want to talk to her. It won't be like it was back then. This isn't the first time detectives reopened the file. They dusted it off back in 1974 when they pleaded with the public to help them and offer new tips. Nothing came of that. In 1976, authorities commented that they had suspects in mind, but not enough evidence to make an arrest. They never explained further. Today, there's really no one else to talk to, at least no one who was at the scene. The semi-truck driver is dead, so is the man who saw the guy in the nice jacket that was pacing around the car. Even the roadside rest area is gone. Two years after the shooting, it was closed at the request of the sheriff's department. At the time, the sheriff complained that it was a challenge to police the area and that they had been receiving calls for everything from lewd acts to vandalism. A wooden restroom building at the site was even destroyed by fire. This is not a case that will be solved by radical advances in DNA. The detectives say they pretty much need a confession. Detective Turner said, We would like someone to come forward that knows who the shooter is. A deathbed confession, something like that. Somebody knows. Or, if it was a random shooter, he's told someone. The motive for the shooting is just as much of a mystery as the shooter himself. Detective Turner said the investigation revealed George Ann to be a great person with no enemies. And yet, one popular theory that has developed is that the killing might have had something to do with a love triangle. That theory has never been fully explained in public. Investigators have only said they don't think this was ever a case of carjacking or robbery. One detective said this was an act of vengeance. George Ann's family did not initially like the love triangle theory, but today her brother George says 
Maybe it was. Maybe someone set her up. Somebody got jealous, George Ritter said. I really believe she was lured out there. The whole incident really frightened George Ann's twin, Joanne. Not knowing the motive, she couldn't help but wonder if somebody might be after her next for some unknown reason. Maybe they thought she knew something. She was newly married at the time, and she quickly moved out of town. She eventually ended up in Painesville, outside Cleveland. George was just as unnerved. He had just returned from military service a month before the shooting. He still remembers that call he got in the middle of the night telling him to come to the hospital and how, on his arrival, he learned his sister had been shot dead. He said just a few weeks earlier, he was in Korea, dodging bullets himself. Then he comes home to safety, and his sister is shot dead. More than half a century later, he and his niece don't want investigators to stop trying to find out why and who. We know there are a lot of cases, the niece Michelle said, and this one is not really on a lot of people's minds, but it doesn't make our hurt any less. If you know anything that can help police on this one, you can call Detective Tanner at 513-785-1209. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.